Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello, welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. WNBA star Brittany Griner is imprisoned in Russia and, apparently, the U.S. is making Russia an incredible offer to get her out. Last week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that America had put a substantial proposal on the table. That proposal? The return to Russia of convicted international arms dealer Victor Boot. The so-called Merchant of Death's story is an incredible one. It even inspired a 2005 Nicolas Cage movie some six years before Boot's arrest in 2011. With us today to talk about it is Sean Williams. Williams is a journalist and the co-host of the Excellent Underworld Pod, a show about the worldwide phenomenon of organized crime. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So I'm excited to learn about uh, all things boot that weren't covered in the <laughs> the documentary I saw a few years ago about him. You want uh, to learn which, all about it? Yeah. Oh, God, we're going to do that all episode. I think. Yeah. yeah. Number one. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So who is Victor Boot? That is a good question in itself. Um, he he has a lot of different a, a lot of different um, faces and reputations depending where you're coming from. Uh, if you've seen that documentary that you mentioned, uh, incredible collection of sort of home videotapes and the like that he accrued over the years. There's also that Lord of War movie with Nicolas Cage, which despite the provenance of the main character, um, which is a bit shifted around from what Boots' life was, actually does detail his career pretty accurately in many ways. Um, But we do know the following. He was born in Dushanbe, Tajikistan in 1967, which is then the Soviet Union, of course. He goes to work for the Soviet Air Force, uh, he goes off to study in Moscow and he majors in Portuguese linguistics, um, which might sound a little bit random, but this is when Lucifone states in Africa are shaking off colonialism. Uh, there are civil wars and wars for independence going on in Angola, Mozambique. Um, so that's that's where he starts off. It gets a bit Shady after that, British spies claimed that throughout the mid-80s he was actually stationed in Rome. Um, but by 1988, he's definitely in Maputo, Mozambique. 
And that's where he meets his wife, who's already married at the time. Uh, so he's a little bit of a sneaky guy, starts writing poetry and uh, and bringing her onto the boot. <laughs> I, I can't think of a pun off the top of my head that's, that's not going to be sound horrible. Um, he makes her he's, all a boot it? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, that's way better than anything I could have come with. Um, but Boots' arms-dealing empire really kicks off when the Soviet empire falls apart. So in the early 90s, uh, obviously, the former Soviet unions are getting carved up by gangsters, oligarchs, turning into the, the wonderful kleptocracy that we all know and love today. And Boots sees an opportunity, right? So there is a huge, huge number of banks and banks of ammunition, weaponry, um, transport. You've got these huge cargo planes, you know, like the Aleutians and the Antonovs, just sitting mothballed in warehouses all over the former Soviet empire. Uh, Boots also got good contacts in the Soviet or former Soviet intelligence community. And he knows a lot of people in the developing world in Africa, Asia and South America uh, who are quite keen to get their hands on uh, whatever he can provide. So between those three points, he kind of builds this arms dealing empire. Um, he starts off in the early 90s. He, he sets up camp in Sharjah, um, where I believe there is still an old Russian cargo plane sitting in the middle of the desert. That's one of his main transport uh, vehicles back then. But then he branches out and he has front companies, holding firms, all kinds of shell outfits in pretty much every country you could imagine on the planet. Um, he doesn't just ship uh, illegal arms shipments. He actually transports all kinds of stuff under which the arms shipments go. So he ships seafood, rare flowers, orchids. Uh, he even ships UN peacekeepers to um, various conflicts in the world. And in 1993, he actually ships a lot of the U.S. soldiers who, who were then part of the mission in Somalia. Um, so everyone was using this guy. He, he has this huge um, business network. Uh, and throughout that decade, he just grows and grows and grows. By 1999, he's a multimillionaire, um, 30 planes, hundreds of staff, possibly billions. We, we're not really sure exactly how much. And then... He gets called the Merchant of Death. He gets this moniker by uh, the then British foreign ministry, uh, foreign minister. 9-11 happens and the whole world changes. Uh, suddenly this, he was sort of viewed as a, a sort of mystery Scarlet Pimpernel almost character. It wasn't seen as a, a very, um, it wasn't seen as a, a scandalous character in the world. I mean, this is, people were using arms dealers legally, illegally, all over the planet. Um, but then it changes. He becomes sort of public enemy number one. And by 2007, he gets snagged in a DEA sting in Bangkok, where he is caught trying to sell uh, various arms and rocket systems to men who are posing as Colombian FARC uh, officers. So that's where he gets screwed over. Actually, that was a pretty standard DEA sting at the time. There was a guy that was a Syrian arms dealer that got stung in exactly the same way in Madrid just months before he did. Um, and, and, and this guy, Monza Alcasa, by the way, he'd been used by the US to ship arms during the Iran Contra affair. So these guys were, there was not, 
they were getting used by the so-called good guys and bad guys. And it was a really sort of gray, mucky area. Um, but by 2012, he was convicted. And yeah, he's, he's sitting in jail now. Why do you think that he, his name got involved in this prisoner transfer at all? Why, why has he come up? I think that a lot of Russian foreign diplomacy, if you can call it that at the moment, is it's kind of tub thumping, saber rattling. It's, it's, it's more about the optics than any serious attempt at, at sort of closed doors diplomacy. So I think Russia was just trying to go for the most high profile character they could think of. Um, and somebody who could, let's say perhaps represent some of the shiftier elements in the foreign policy of all countries at the time, not least the UK and the US who had used boot um, for their own purposes at, at one point or another in his um, illustrious or otherwise career. So I think that it's the notoriety more than anything else. I don't think that he really represents anything seriously harmful if he were to be released per se. Um, I'm not sure. I I mean, I'm not an international arms dealer, so I'm not sure how easy it is just to pick up where you left off if you've been in prison for the best part of two decades, but, um, or one decade rather. But I think that it's it's headline grabbing, it's attention grabbing. I think that's what Russia is trying to do, especially when it's trying to maybe take some uh, attention away from some other pretty big things that it's doing at the moment. No idea yeah, what you're talking about. Yeah, it, was a pretty, <laughs> uh, it was a pretty wild uh, end of the week in that story, but that's a different podcast mm. entirely. Um, one of the things that I always really felt fa- was fascinating about him Uh, and this really comes to light in that documentary is charting his success out of the collapse of the Soviet empire. Mm, You talk a little bit more about how though, how that collapse kind of creates the conditions in which a person like him can uh, rise to prominence. Yeah, I guess it's multifaceted really. So, from the top down, I mean, there is almost no control from the top of former Soviet future slash current Russian Federation um, from the Kremlin, really. It's such a huge, gigantic empire. Um, it's it, when it when it collapsed, it, it turned in. It was so many vassal states with so many different cultures and so many different governing structures when that all kind of fell apart from the top, from Moscow, uh, you had infighting and attempted coups. There was all kinds of crazy shenanigans going on in Moscow itself. You've got, um, you've got Boris Yeltsin coming to power, who's essentially um, an alcoholic and very incapable of leading some of the people directly below his command, who were the kind of tectonic plates of power of just shifting at a crazy rate. Um, then you've got a country which had one of the biggest armies and militaries in, in human history suddenly disappearing. Um, and those officers and colonels and people involved in the, in the money side of that, they're not just going to give up um, their only chance of making a buck, especially in a country where, you know, there's hyperinflation and the entire economy is just falling to pieces. So it's almost like, I guess, 
it's just a web with absolutely it's like a it's like a kind of i don't know like a, a a pylon with nothing on it it's just a bare frame of an infrastructure of a country at the time um and it just left the door open for muscle men really um of all different stripes and backgrounds to take over various different industries i mean there are people involved in the highest levers of power in in the kremlin now like um abramovich for example <laughs> um people might know him from chelsea but he made you know he made an absolute fortune in various i think it was mining he he sort of took over back then and for boot he was able to link together very quickly these um very informal networks of arms storage you know the, the arms that are in storage and the people who could get their hands on them and the people who wanted them um and there was a lot of money to be made there so because there's also in addition to the personnel kind of as you alluded to at the end there's warehouses full of weapons yeah all over in countries that are in dispute now like mm-hmm. that are former soviet countries um so yes yeah, some and there's it's a it's a commodity that needs to be moved and someone can make money doing it yeah boot, boot was in a position to do that a lot of that was in Ukraine as well. A lot of that, um, the munitions and the uh, the small arms were in Ukraine. Um, and a lot still are. Um, so, yeah. Do we, can you elaborate also on his, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, like what his job exactly was? And then what did his connection to Russian authorities continue or what was the nature of it as far as we know continuing into the new era uh that is a good question so (laughs) he his history as a soviet mediator translator slash spy in africa at the time um and allegedly rome um there's not a huge amount known about that everything's quite secretive um he definitely has very very high up contacts within the the people who were in power back then um whether he's closely tied to them throughout the 90s i mean it would be very difficult for him not to work within that kind of economy of patronage and shake, shaking hands and and that kind of informal economy that the kleptocracy grew out of in russia um so it's it's fair to surmise that he does have extremely high up contacts within the current um kremlin power structure um as regards actually <laughs> saying he is linked to say putin here and here that's that's pretty much impossible um which makes it interesting that he's been used as a bargaining chip now because I wonder what he knows and who he knows and what he knows about them. Because <laughs> um, he seemed to think that at one point after he, when he did a New York Times uh, feature that sort of bumped up his profile weirdly around the world, I think he said to the reporter something like, if people knew what I knew, um, I would have a hole right here. And he points to his forehead or something like this, I think it was. So, yeah, he, he probably knows a lot. What did Boot want? What does he want? Does he like money? Does he like power? I think that's an interesting part of his character, right? So if you see 
the documentary about him, he's kind of, he, he kind of presents him, he presents as this sort of almost bumbling Chevy Chase dad on tour kind of character. He's just a sort of happy go lucky entrepreneur. Um, I, I think that neither that nor the nickname Merchant of Death really fits him. I think he's completely amoral. I think he was just a businessman making making money where he could. Um, he didn't ever express any regret or moral concerns for where where these arms were going and what what it was doing around the world. Um, you didn't get your Hollywood Nick Cage moment of sort of self-reflection in that character that you kind of need for the movie. Uh, he just seems like he was completely, um, he was just a businessman and he didn't really, he didn't really care about anything else. What were some of his greatest hits, so to speak? <laughs> well, he was, he was, uh, he, he funneled a lot of arms into the huge and devastating war in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo um, he was funding both sides of that. He was he was close partner with Sessa uh, Seko and with the rebels at the time, and that's one of the bloodiest conflicts in in history, um, all over Africa. Really, uh, I think in the in the Hollywood movie, um, he's with Charles Taylor, um, or a, a kind of fictional representation of Charles Taylor. I think it might be. I'm not sure if it's a real character of him but yes uh boot was very big there as well so liberia that is liberia sorry yeah yeah i was thinking i always get sierra leone liberia yeah um so it was it, in africa is where his so-called greatest hits might have uh played out um but he he did ship weapons to south america as well um and some parts of southeast asia so um he was a he was an equal opportunities uh merchant of death Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. All right, I have a weird kind of aside here for us. Because uh, I, I wanted to get you to explain... This is really comes across... You've talked about it a little bit. It really comes across in the documentary... Um, his kind of personality mm. and his physical appearance. But uh, as an aside, very quickly, I was looking at, I was like, how tall is he again? Looked up his height. Uh, and the first thing that comes up on Google is celebrity news from the focus. Victor boot height is the merchant of death taller than Brittany Griner. Uh, ah, that's the news Brittany, we need to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not to spoil it for anyone who wants to look it up, but Brittany Griner is six, nine. Victor Boot is uh-huh. six feet, so she's nine inches taller than he is. But I'm sorry, please tell me what he like looks like and kind of what his persona is. I thought we were talking about that deal was a purely pound for pound sort of <laughs> right. exchange. 
Um, right, right. We got to make sure that everyone's the right height when we're doing prisoner exchanges. Yeah. So he has kind of two, he has sort of two eras. Um, he has this, I mean, when he's making his name, he's this sort of dumpy guy in a safari shirt. Um, he, he really does look like a sort of 1980s hapless dad character from a movie. Um, and he's just sort of, Getting big drunk, drinking vodka with his pilots and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Big mustache. Um, you know, could be down your local bowling team. That that kind of character. And then when he gets arrested, um, I'm guessing that in a Thai prison they don't give you the best food because he loses about half of his body weight and he kind of looks like a bit of a hunk. Um, he's like a big guy. He sort of looks quite um, sinewy almost. And uh, I think if you've seen the pictures of him in a in a sort of you know, prison jumpsuit. He he looks almost the opposite of what he looks uh, in those early videotapes. I don't know where he is on that scale these days. Um, I don't know what the prison food's like in the US, but I'm guessing he didn't get a chance to eat and drink as much as he quite might have done back in the day. What made him specifically... Was it just 9-11 and that the world changed? Was Or was there something specific he did that made him a target of the US? I think he was also an embarrassment. I think he was quite keen to play the media card um, throughout the late 90s. Anyone who's looking into his his uh, financial deals or his, his business holdings at the time was just finding, you know, brick wall after brick wall. There's this constant whack-a-mole of companies everywhere from Moldova to Mozambique that he's setting up, and no one could really crack it. And he kind of started taking the piss a little bit. He he courted journalists and the, uh, I think the New York Times piece that I mentioned before, he's sort of pictured seating in a sort of throne wearing a kind of cheap, shiny gangster's two-piece suit. Um, and he just, I think that in that post 9-11 era where there was a, for for better or worse, there was a mo- there was a it was a lot more black and white in the morality of this world. Then I don't think that people either in the media or in the government could try to um, paint this guy as a as a sort of grey area rogue. Um, he was either good or he was evil. And obviously, being a, a Russian's arm traffic, a Russian arms trafficker, um, he was the latter. So I think that kind of put a massive target on his back and he became a bigger priority for the authorities. And that's, um, yeah, a few years later, he gets nabbed. Do we have any idea how much money he made? And uh, did he get to keep any of it? Yeah, no, and possibly no. So um, you would imagine that someone that builds an empire like that can squirrel away a few million in a in a Cayman Islands uh, account. But it's really unclear how much he made and it's really unclear how, how much the illegal arms market is worth. Um, it's like, like you were saying before, there, there is so much stuff, um, being either left around or sold around the world. It's really hard to get a, uh, a really accurate number on what that's worth. I I read something at the time, the time when I was really researching him hard, I, I saw 1 billion, but that seems incredibly low. Um, and obviously he was making legal deals and illegal deals. Um, so it's hard to kind of put together how much his, his business empire was worth. 
I, I would imagine that he's got a bunch of it left somewhere. Um, his wife is pretty outspoken. She seems to always be dressed pretty well. So um, she might have her hands on the account number. Yeah, that's one of the fascinating things about the documentary is that she's featured prominently and there's so much archival footage and home movie stuff. It really feels like a media hit that they engineered a little bit, right? Just to kind of keep his name kind of floating around out there. Possibly so. Yeah. I mean, once he, once he gets busted by the feds, I think, you know, they want to just put him in a black hole and hopefully people forget about him. So Allah, his wife, um, I think, yeah, there's a, there's a fair deal of um, keeping things in the headlines at that point. And uh, I guess this isn't going to hurt him either. Can we talk a little bit more about the bust, the one though where he got caught? This is like a setup kind of from the beginning, right? Yeah. I mean, they first, they get to him through a guy in his entourage at the time he's living in South Africa. And there's a guy who's fallen on hard times. I think he was a Brit and at the, he ends up working in Tanzania at a, a hypodermic needle factory. So the authorities get to boot through him and he'll basically do anything for a few, a few <laughs> pounds at the time. So they get into his, they get basically contact with boot through this, this British guy. And then they try and set up a deal. I think first in Romania, they try to lure him to, uh, because Romania, they can, they can basically whisk him away from there. Uh, but he calls their bluff. And then they set something else up in Bangkok. And this is where it gets a bit weird because this guy that I mentioned before, the Syrian arms dealer, Monzel Kassa, he was caught very high profile sting the previous year, like 2006, this is 2007, exactly the same thing. And US agents love posing as the FARC because they can claim that whoever gets caught trying to sell things or do deals with the FARC is attacking US citizens because the US is, I think, currently officially at war with the FARC or it's it's a live conflict. So Boot really should have seen this one coming. Um, he doesn't, or he, he does. It's so strange. This is all caught on CCTV as well. They're talking yeah, it's about really, you, it's so way, weird. The way it's presented in the doc is it's like, if I recall correctly, and it's been a while since I've seen it, it's like he... He was he was on his way out, but he's you know they pulled him back in for one more deal, and he knew yeah. that it was kind of shady, but but it was so much money that they went for it anyway. It was something like that, right? Uh, th- there's a way that he sits there; he can't not know that he's being filmed, even by people he's doing business with, and he just pours all this information out about the business and what he can give them. And, you know, he's talking about helicopters and, and surface-to-air missiles and whatever, like really heavy equipment. Um, and he takes he takes this thing so blithely that it's almost like he knows it's about to happen. He doesn't really care. I think at that point he felt a bit invincible that no one was really going to nail him. Um, either that or he genuinely was pulled out of sort of summer of time and to do this one last job. Um, but it is really strange. It's worth looking at, at that footage, actually, because it, it's something completely off about it. Maybe he felt an enormous regret and just wanted to pay his sentence to society. Uh, so, 
yeah, that, that script is right in itself. Yeah. Um, so after that, uh, he was tried and sentenced. Uh, how long was he stuck in jail for? Is he supposed to be there the rest of his life or? I think he's there for, is he 25 years? Is his prison sentence? Um, so, I mean, for a guy born in 1967, yeah, that's a pretty long time. Um, I guess that's 2012, so he's not going to be due out till 2037. So, yeah, he's he's due to spend a lot more time behind bars. Um, so, yeah, this could be this could be his big break, Brittany Griner, and and the uh, political turmoil, uh, the, the war in Ukraine as well. So, um, yeah, we'll see. So we're supposed to get Griner back and also a U.S. Marine uh, mm-hmm. that, they, that they had accused of uh, espionage, if I remember correctly. I'll ask an unfair question, uh, pound for pound. Is this a good trade? Yeah, I mean, that, how tall is the U.S. Marine? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that depends on whom you ask. I mean, the t- it's almost like it's almost like bowing to the demands of terrorists in a way, because the two people who have been imprisoned by the Russian authorities uh, were. If you look at their cases, even if you're, even if you are the most pro-Russian person on the planet and you are best friends with Vladimir Putin, I think that you have to concede that those are ridiculously harsh sentences for extremely minor, if not non-existent, offences. Um, to compare those two people with. To, to compare those two, so now I'm talking about the, the te- there's a teacher as well. There's a guy, um, there's a guy from Ohio, I think, who was also locked up with for a marijuana use or something like this. Then there's a former U.S. Marine espionage, whether or not that's true, we probably won't know ever. Um, it's hard to compare the importance of someone that the whole world has chased after for years and has you know, indirectly led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people with Brittany Griner. Um, And from a purely statecraft point of view, I think it's a pretty poor deal. Um, I don't think that, I don't want Brittany Griner to spend another day in prison. I'm not saying that at all, but I think that it's, it's hard it's really hard because I think Russia is doing it for the optics. I don't, I don't think it's a, if there can be such thing as a good faith negotiation in this case, I think that I, if I had to, I tell you what, in ter- instead of my opinion, what I think will happen is that this deal idea will fizzle out and something else will take its place because I don't see the U S in good faith, having a negotiation about Victor Boot, I think that there was too big a mark on his head for too many years um, to let him go now. Um, there's been a load of other people thrown into this mix as well. There's the guy that the, uh, Germany currently has in a prison just outside here where I'm in Berlin, um, who 
committed a sort of political assassination in the city a couple of years ago. Um, the Germans have reportedly been asked whether they're going to go in on this deal. And, <laughs> and uh, from a couple of pieces I saw, they've said absolutely not. So I don't know. It's really, really hard to say what's going to happen here. But I would imagine that the US will push for getting a lot, lot more than a one for one or even a two for one deal for like a guy who was the biggest arms dealer, you know, in at the era, at least. You make a good point here, actually. Is it, uh, Please tell me if I'm getting something wrong here. But as far as I could tell, as I was reading into this the past week, um, nobody has officially said the name. Nobody in an official capacity has said the name Victor Boot, right? Mm-hmm. This is one of those yeah. things that's kind of like Blinken and others have said that a substantial proposal has been made. And then through other sources, the name Victor Boot has gotten out and been floated. And that's why we're talking about him, right? Yeah. It, it's, it smacks of, it's, it's anonymous sources speaking in WhatsApp messages to journalists. I think, um, no one's going to say anything right at the top. I doubt they will, unless it happens right towards, you know, when they're both running across from opposite sides of a bridge somewhere outside Finland or whatever. Um, so yeah, we don't know for sure <laughs> if it's Victor Boot. It's by the law of averages, it's probably him, but yeah. Let's say, Let's say Victor Boot gets out of prison. What does a 55-year-old international arms dealer that's lived in the Soviet Empire and in the Russian Federation do when he gets out of prison? Um, I think the first thing he does is speaks to a nationalist Russian screenwriter about doing a documentary or a film <laughs> about his wonderful life serving the nation. Um I think the second thing he does is probably hire a couple of bodyguards because I think he'll have to live pretty much in lockstep with the Kremlin if he does get out and he will be as marked man checking that he's not causing any trouble as it's possible to be. I don't, like I said before, I don't really see him just like picking up the old gang and going for a joyride in Charger and dropping off some A-bombs somewhere. Like I think that he will be put out to pasture if he is let out um and it, you'll probably see him take on his former shape a little bit more he's probably drinking a lot of vodka and eating some lovely blinny or whatever sean williams thank you so much for coming on to angry planet and talking all about it with us i'm so sorry that's the last one I'll <laughs> just do. had to fit one last one i just in had there, to get you? one more in yeah <laughs> <laughs> thanks guys That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin Odell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields, who recently pointed out that it's been about seven years since the show first uh, first started over at Reuters under the name War College. It's been a wild ride. If you like us and you want to support us, please go to angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com. Uh, kick us $9 a month. You get commercial-free versions of the mainline episodes and bonus episodes as they come out. We just released one a little bit earlier that is a check-in on Afghanistan and how that's been going since America left. Uh, spoilers, not well. 
We've got another one we've recorded that'll be a bonus that is about war crimes and the Nuremberg trials and how we even got to a place in culture where we thought of things that happened in war as crimes. That'll be releasing a little bit later this month. Uh, We will be back again next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.